Roger, this is Godfather. Send your traffic. Over. Roger. Line Sierra. Four enemy personnel. Break. Welcome, everybody, to the Greenside Podcast. I am your host, Taylor Mooney. In the studio today with me, I have Professor Rand Beers. He's uh, currently my professor in a class called How National Security Policy is Made. I want to thank Professor Beers for being here today. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. So I'll give you a little background on Professor Beers so you know who we are talking to. Professor Beers began his professional career as a Marine Corps officer and rifle company commander in Vietnam. Uh, He served the Marines from 1964 to 1968. He entered the Foreign Service in 1971 and transferred to the Civil Service in 1983. He served most of his career in the Department of State. Uh, He held positions as Deputy Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Regional Affairs and the Bureau of Political Military Affairs. He focused on Middle East and the Persian Gulf. That was from 90 to 93. He was the Assistant Secretary of State for International Narcotics and Law Enforcement Affairs from 1998 until 2002. Professor Beers also served on the National Security Council staff under five presidents as the Director for Counterterrorism and Counter-Narcotics from 88 to 92, Director of Peacekeeping from 93 to 95, Special Assistant to the President and Senior Director for Intelligence Programs from 95 to 98, and Special Assistant to President and Senior Director for Combating Terrorism from 2002 until 2003. He resigned from the NSC staff in March 2003 and retired from government service in April 2003. Following his departure, he served as the National Security Advisor for the Kerry Campaign. He also went on to be the Undersecretary for National Protection and Programs Directorate at the Department of Homeland Security. He was also the Department's Counterterrorism Coordinator, and he eventually became the Acting Secretary of Homeland Security. I think that covers. Did I leave something out? No, that's fine. <laughs> that's a lot of stuff. That's a lot of. That's oh a, no! And the last thing is, and ended his government career as the deputy uh, assistant to the president for Homeland Security. There you go. I thought there was uh, there's something. That's that, the fifth. That's the that's the fifth and final one. Yeah. A lot of those a lot of those job titles I feel like are very difficult to probably like say out loud when you're introducing yourself. If you're like a cocktail party. Yeah. You, you say like someone says like what do you do in the administration? Do you say the whole title? Uh, no, in fact, the particularly problematic one, which doesn't tell you anything, is Undersecretary for National Protection and Programs, which um, is in fact an Undersecretary for uh, Physical and Cyber Infrastructure Protection, which tells you what the job is actually about. DHS is responsible for the do for the civilian agencies in the U.S. government, cybersecurity, and for the private sector. I mean, I feel like cybersecurity now is just exploding. It's the new frontier of everything, especially intelligence. How do you take over, I mean, I don't know if you had a lot of experience in cyber in the background, in your background, but how do you take over an organization that you may not personally have a lot of specific expertise in? How do you go and lead a, a diverse group like that? Well, to answer your question, the experience that you get in a variety of government jobs help you come to a totally new job with some perspective that's broader than the job itself and helps you, I think, uh, to insert yourself into the process with some ability uh, to, to provide thoughts and, and perspective. But in any new job, there's a a learning period which runs, depending upon the individual, from six 
uh, to 12 months. And that is a very steep learning period where what an individual is trying to do is just absorb as much information as possible, listen to as many people who have that experience already, uh, and try to absorb it. But back to my first point, um, bringing an outside perspective to it, I think, is also helpful to the people with whom you're working because it gives them uh, sort of the man from Mars perspective when you ask questions, uh, why are we doing this sort of, sort of things? With respect to the cybersecurity job, eh, I actually did have some perspective. I'm not a programmer, and I don't pretend to be. But I was involved in cybersecurity policy, really, at the inception of the uh, government beginning to think about it when President Clinton asked for um, a a study of national infrastructure uh, in 1997. And the group who, who actually undertook it was called the Marsh Commission, named after a army general who had uh, experience. He was, a, he was an engineer. Um, and we basically looked at both physical and cyber infrastructure um, and what were the uh, threats and vulnerabilities uh, pertaining to both, uh, and then produced a report on uh, what the government ought to think about doing, which went to the president, and then I was responsible for turning it into um, a... Uh, presidential decision uh, mm-hmm. directive. Um, I actually changed jobs halfway through that period and uh, turned the process over to my friend Richard Clark, who's much more well known than I am as uh, the person who actually finished off that presidential directive uh, and got it signed by President Clinton. Right. So, you, so you were you were there from the inception, helped in the formation of the early policy. With that background, if is it possible to pick? One like the most uh, potentially dangerous threat you think in cybersecurity going forward. If you're still advising the government, or the president, if you had to give them one thing about like we really need to focus our cyber efforts on this, is there one thing you could pick or two maybe if you had to? Well, certainly in terms of threats, um, even putting aside uh, what what uh, happened or is alleged to have happened in the 2016 election, I think it's fair to say that uh, Russia and China in particular as nation states represent the largest cyber threat to the United States, which is not to downplay Iran or, or uh, North Korea, but they're the big dogs in this fight, if you will. And I think we have to pay uh, extraordinary attention to them. But you do not dismiss the hacking community because they have the potential to disrupt our economy uh, in terms of the theft of personal information, uh, in terms of uh, the uh, entry into our market system, um, Mm -hmm. and uh, could, in fact, become a serious economic threat uh, to the country. They are less than that at this point in time, but I wouldn't discount uh, that possibility, particularly if they choose uh, uh, to align themselves with a nation state or if a nation state coerces them into uh, taking on uh, that kind of a role. I think people have wondered for a long time since much of the hacking community 
the best known part of the hacking community has tended to come out of the former Soviet Union, either Russia or uh, Ukraine. And uh, how much are they aligned uh, mm. with the intelligence community in, in Russia today? Right, right. Now, I mean, that's a, that's a very good point. Like you said, the whole issue with the Russia and the hacking and everything, I think it's definitely pushed to the forefront of many Americans and it pushed to the forefront of their mind, the idea of uh, cyber hacking and cybersecurity when they probably previously didn't think of it. And then we had the Equifax uh, breaches, so then people definitely thought about it because now your personal uh, d- you know, data and credit history is, is now being exposed. Moving on from that, I know when you served as the director for counterterrorism and counter-narcotics, uh, you know, that was from 88 to 92, right, when, you know, the war on drugs was was the, the thing to do, <laughs> so to speak. Looking back on your time there, do you think that our drug policy has been effective in, in what its intended goals were, starting with the war on drugs, or have we deviated from the original plan? Well, I think you have to start for uh, with answering the question, what was our objective? Uh, Certainly, when uh, Nancy Reagan uh, said we should just say no to drugs, um, that framed uh, the reference point. And if that's the reference point, then our policy has not been successful over the years. There have been peaks and troughs in terms of drug use based on the survey information. But if you look at where we are today— in terms of uh, the drug crisis we're experiencing. Uh, It's bigger, I think, than it's ever been. Have we been successful in any way in reducing the amount of foreign drugs that are coming into this country? Uh, Again, ups and downs, to some extent, yes, to some extent, no. Uh, But it's still true that cocaine and heroin uh, can come into the United States. I think Uh, Marijuana is essentially grown in the United States these days or uh, easily imported from either Mexico or China. Uh, But I do think that um, the bottom line really is, no, we haven't been successful. The demand is still there. People are still using it. And uh, people are dying in larger numbers today than ever before from drug overdoses. Right. I think you just have such a a neat perspective because most of us discuss these things and, you know, it's just very casual talk. But you have this overarching view where you're the one of the directors are a very uh, pivotal figure in combating, you know, counter narcotics and things like that. So uh, I think it's definitely an interesting perspective. I want to go back a bit, though, to to the beginning, if you will. You you, uh, you went to the Marine Corps after you graduated Dartmouth College here. Uh, What made you, especially at that time, want to join the Marine Corps? Well, uh, I was always much more interested in uh, uh, land warfare uh, as a kid growing up. But when I came to Dartmouth, I came on under an NROTC scholarship. Mm-hmm. And uh, in that uh, program, you had to go to sea for your first summer. And I was on a destroyer escort in the North Atlantic. And I was bored to death. So when the Marine instructor in the program came around and said, well, there is an alternative to being in the Navy. You can be in the Marine Corps. This was 1962. Um, And I said, absolutely, want to do that, and uh, signed up. Vietnam 
was there, but it wasn't really on anybody's horizon at that time, I don't think it would have made a difference to me. Uh, it just was. It just seemed to me to be a much more interesting uh, way to go uh, than having to go uh, to sea for four years, which was the minimum amount of time uh, that I would have had to be in the Navy uh, had I chosen the Navy option. All right. Yeah. You know, just this past weekend, I was at Dartmouth College's uh, alumni veterans banquet, and they the one one of the people that was honored and got the main award at that banquet was a, uh, a surgeon from Vietnam. And, uh, and I've also I've been fortunate to go to a, a Vietnam reunion for a, a rifle company. My best, Actually, my best friend in my rifle squad from Afghanistan, his father, was a Vietnam veteran. And when they had a reunion in D.C. and I was living there, I was fortunate enough to, to attend. And it's amazing talking to all these Vietnam veterans, all of these amazing perspectives and things they went through, uh, you know, if you can articulate, how do you, th- what role do you think Vietnam played in your life? How significant was that experience from you forming, uh, not you just personally, but professionally? Well, the first lesson that it taught me that has really stuck with me through my life is whatever you read about war and all of the grand Uh, objectives, if you're on the winning side, Mm -hmm. uh, that uh, have been achieved um, saving uh, the world from uh, Nazism and things like that with respect to World War II. The actual experience by the person on the ground is less about those grand goals and much more individual in terms of what do you need to do both to stay alive, and to protect uh, the persons on your left and your right. And that kind of bonding is uh, absolutely critical to survival in a combat uh, kind of situation. It is also true that I saw how horrible war was in terms of individuals uh, being killed uh, or maimed. Uh, I was once in a uh, company-sized movement, and we uh, ended up uh, having a uh, Claymore mine mounted on a tree tripped, uh, and it was literally uh, 20 feet in front of me. And the blast shook me, and the individual, the Marine, two people behind me in the column died with a piece of shrapnel through his helmet. Mm. And it just reminded me uh, how random death or injury can be in a combat situation and how much a few inches or a few feet can make between being that person or being uninjured as I was uh, in that situation. And finally, um, I also experienced as many people who were under my command who died from friendly fire as I did people, Marines, who died from enemy fire. We had a bomb that was dropped on our perimeter by mistake, 
a misplotting. We had an artillery round uh, for which the powder train uh, wasn't properly set, uh, and uh, that fell in our perimeter. And the worst situation was uh, where we had a battalion um, movement, and the battalion operations officer wanted to call in uh, nighttime protective fire and, and register it during the day so that he would know where it would land at night when you couldn't see because he had fired those rounds during the day. He misplotted the perimeter, and my forward observer and I both told him that he had misplotted our perimeter, and he went ahead and called for those rounds to be fired anyway, and they landed in our perimeter, and there was one dead and a number wounded, and the investigation failed to give him the responsibility for that loss of life. It was, it was depressing and infuriating to have that kind of incompetence just glossed over. When I left Vietnam and came back to the United States, I was able to gain a much broader perspective on the war in Vietnam than I had when I was leading troops in combat. And by the time I got out of the Marine Corps and went to graduate school, um, I was opposed to the war. And that stuck with me. So that when we were going into Iraq in 2003, this is in December of 2002, President Bush asked us to put together a National Security Council meeting to talk about counterterrorism policy to make sure that we were focused on not having something happen in the terrorism area area while we were proceeding to invade Iraq. So my boss and I uh, put one thing on the agenda, which was basically to say, will going into Iraq give Osama bin Laden a recruiting advantage because we entered Iraq, just as he said, we would go after controlling oil in the Persian Gulf. So we got to that particular situation in the meeting. And uh, George Tenet, then the CIA director, spoke first and said, Mr. President, we need to be very conscious of this possibility as we move forward. Um, the Deputy Secretary of Defense, Paul Wolfowitz, who was a strong advocate for the war in Iraq, uh, but who had also been an ambassador to Indonesia, the largest Muslim country in the world, at an earlier point in his career, agreed with Tenet. When Rice, Condi Rice, the National Security Advisor, started to speak, the president stopped her. And he basically said, war, our victory in Iraq will take care of that problem. Mm. and stopped the whole conversation there, meaning but unsaid that our military victory in Iraq would cause other governments to want to be appropriately aligned with us in the war on terrorism and that recruits would have second thoughts before they were 
drawn uh, to bin Laden. Um, Clearly, both of those turned out to be wrong, but for me, it was the point to say, I can't stay and serve this president as he should be able to expect from people on his immediate staff. And so I resigned and then retired and then went to work for John Kerry for regime change at home. Right. I imagine that has to be such a difficult decision uh, to to resign, because I think there, I'm, I'm guessing there comes a point where you have to decide, well, like if I stay, can I impact the policy and potentially you know, sway the person above me or perhaps the president to to understand my point. But I, I assume once you come to the conclusion you cannot and that you're if you exist there, you're you're no longer you said able to influence policy and two, not properly serving the president because you dissent so heavily, then you have to leave. But I, I mean I can imagine that has to be uh quite the thought process. But I don't know if you know you're sitting alone in an office or going for a walk and making a decision like that after you've spent such a long career. That has to be something you really reflect on, I I imagine. Well, it certainly was, um, and um, it was a process that took place basically over a weekend, Um, and then I came to work on Monday uh, and uh, told my immediate superior and then uh, Condi Rice that I was resigning. Um, Rice asked me why, and I said, well, it was for personal reasons. Um, and I said that because it was personal. But he also said that uh, because um, at that particular point in time, nothing I did was going to change the fact that we were going to invade Iraq. This was now by, by this time it was February. And we were going to go to war in the next 48 hours. And I did not want to become involved in the opponents of the war's dialogue when no matter what I did or said, members of the United States military were going into combat, and I certainly have enough respect for the challenges that that will bring, and I did not want at that point in time to be part of the dialogue about why we shouldn't go to war. I right. could say that later, and that's why I joined the Kerry campaign. Right. When, now, this is more of a kind of personal note. When you make big life decisions like that, I mean, do you, I mean, you talk to your family, talk to your wife, talk to a best friend, pray. Like, I know a lot of people have had, men in leadership have had different processes and how they go about making a monumental decision. Do you have a certain uh, process you use every time? Or you kind of just sit down and think about it? Well, I certainly uh, talked to my wife uh, before I made the decision, and I also uh, talked to a couple of friends, uh, one of whom uh, is Richard Clark, who um, describes our conversation inaccurately (laughs) in the last chapter of his book, Against All Enemies, about the uh, 9-11 situation. Um. He has me both um, uh, swearing uh, a great deal more than I do (laughs) and uh, drinking uh, a lot more wine uh, than we had 
uh, that afternoon. But Well, that's the amazing thing with comrades is those stories tend to go that way, don't they? There's more drinking and more cursing the more you tell a story as the years go on. Uh, yes, and, <laughs> and Dick is, is famous for embellishment. Right. That makes sense, yeah. I mean, I think any story amongst... Uh, I'd say friends and brothers is like I said, as time goes on, if there was alcohol involved, sometimes the stories get a little more embellished. I think that's like a natural like tendency. How do you, you know, when you were speaking earlier about your, your service in Vietnam, it made me, it made me think of a few things um, that I thought of. One was just the randomness of war, but of, but of life as well. And I know like personally that kind of affected my outlooks on life. It made me in the long run more appreciative of life and kind of learning to to be happy with what I have and, and live in the moment more. And if there are setbacks in life, I kind of am more able to put it in perspective in the grand scheme of things. But, you know, if I get a bad paperback or I don't do well in a class or if a girlfriend leaves or whatever, these life things happen, you're like, well, you know, like, it'll be okay. Like, life will move on. Now, I'm not always perfect at it and I don't always think that way, but it has given me something in my toolbox to where when it really gets bad, I can do that. And that's just more of a personal comment. But, you said something about dealing with uh, your leader who improperly plotted uh, uh, some artillery or some some strikes there, and it, and it fell on the people. And there was an investigation, and then nothing uh, really came of it. And I feel like a lot of people in the military have something in that realm, or you know, maybe it's a little not as intense, or maybe it is up to that. And I've seen similar things as well. And I think it's very frustrating when that happens. And you you describe that feeling as well. So you not only in the Marines but in a career in government, how do you deal with a a leader who is well just incompetent? And then if if they made decisions and are still currently making decisions that are impacting people's lives, uh, sometimes on a life and death scale, how do you how do you deal with that as someone that's a subordinate to them? Have you figured that out? Because I haven't totally figured it out yet. Well, there's certainly no set kind of uh, procedures. Uh, and there's always the question of, will anything I try to do actually have an effect to change uh, the behavior? But I think two things uh, are worth bearing in mind. Uh, first, um, you always have the opportunity uh, to uh, go around a person like that, I guess, up until the president of the United States. Right. <laughs> but it is a a question always of, is this important enough to try to go around that person to influence policy uh, or decisions uh, that will reduce the incompetence uh, or bad judgment of the individual with whom uh, you're trying to deal. Uh, and, and secondly, uh, and the longer run way to think about it is, if this is not important enough to really stand up and make a stink about it, and there are lots of minor things that happen in government that you may disagree with, but just really aren't worth expending the energy uh, to try to change them. Uh, and in that situation, which does happen, I think the main thing to remember is, are you really here for the long run? Or is this 
stuff not worth staying for and you ought to leave government. And I really never felt that the decisions of people around and above me were of that moment until I resigned over the war uh, in Iraq, which was a direct result of my reaction to bad policy in Vietnam. I think that's a good point is you said something in there about kind of picking and choosing your battles. It's spending not only political capital you have, but emotional capital. You know, sometimes we see people in these positions. I've had Marines or colleagues and I've worked other places and they just want to fight every battle. And you're like, you got to kind of start one, calm down to, you know, is this really the thing that you, like, you, is this your rallying cry? Is this the thing that really matters to you? Or could this slide and you save it for the more important thing? You're kind of missing uh, the most important point, you're arguing the tiny points. You should probably save it. Because if you're the person who cries wolf constantly, then you start getting kind of like tuned out by higher-ups. Like, oh, God, here he comes again. He's going to my office. What's, what now, Johnson? You know, it's like, oh, God, get him out of here. So I think I think it, <laughs> that's a good point. You, and you said something else when you were talking about um, your service in Vietnam, and, it's, and it made me think of something. And, you know, it's dealing with, with war and the sacrifices of war. You know, obviously young men and women are lost and there's a big price that's paid. And then there's this other part where, you know, you're thinking about the war itself and the politics and the policy and whether we should be there. And I think, like, younger me was, you know, you know, if you criticize the Iraq war, you're not a patriot. You know, I was, like, 18. But then once I got into the military and I deployed, and you, for me, you realize the world isn't so black and white. Uh, a lot of the world is in the gray. Um, then I came to the conclusion personally that the Iraq, going to the war in Iraq wasn't the right decision once I got older and studied more and experienced life more. But that can be very difficult to say. And there's many veterans who feel like it's a betrayal of, of, of sacrifice if you ever criticize the war itself. And I don't view it that way. I, my, my way of looking at it is, you know, you can never take away the, the sacrifices and the moments you had with the people you're with on the ground, like the guys I was with, no one can take away the brothership and the hard work and being there for each other. And because politics change, countries change, boundaries change, it's a history of the world. But you can't change what we did together. And so whether or not another president comes in and changes policy or announces a deadline or one decides to surge, one decides to not, whether you know the territory gets taken back over, whether or not your war is considered ultimately a, a, a failure or a success, it doesn't take away what you guys had. And I think sometimes when I talk to their vets, I understand why you'd get very emotional about critiquing the war they served in. But I think it's also necessary that uh, veteran voices, people who have been there, are willing to take a critical view, no matter what you end up concluding, but taking a critical view of, of why, um, you know, why we're doing the things we do, which is usually something you do after service, like you mentioned. I think you did that once you got out. Probably not the best to be doing it, you know, in the middle of a combat zone. That's not your role. But afterwards, I think it's good to think critically. And some of the things um, you said kind of made me, made me think of that. Do you kind of have, like, the same take or do you have a different take as far as when it comes to like you know you were critical but it doesn't take away what happened over there with the, with the men you led does that make sense it does i think first of all i left vietnam in january of 1968 a week before the tet offensive 
Mm-hmm. I was there during the the build up period, and whatever you say about how people describe that, there was a greater sense that this was something, this was an objective that the United States could accomplish. It could defend South Vietnam. It could help stabilize uh, the conflict uh, in that situation. Secondly, the last thing that a unit commander needs to do is undermine the view of the soldiers or Marines who are under his command about what they're doing there Mm -hmm. because they're being asked to risk their lives. Now, after Tet, it became, I think, much more clear to to the soldiers who served there that this didn't make as much sense as it did before Tet. Mm, and that was a very different situation. But your general proposition about uh, still being public about your criticism uh, of a combat situation in which people you knew lost their lives or were grievously wounded um, is not an easy thing to do. But it doesn't represent disloyalty because just as economists say there's no such thing as a sunk cost Mm -hmm. I think that's true in policy as well and if you can't if leaders can't step back and say this isn't working and then step back further and say and there is nothing we can do that will change this situation, then you have to be honest about that and take the steps that that conclusion leads you to and begin to disengage from the combat, from the war that the country's involved in. That's not an easy decision, particularly for the people who made the decision to go in or to increase our involvement because it is an admission of a grievous mistake and no one normally would want to find themselves in that situation, which is almost why you have to change government in order to correct that kind of a mistake. In Vietnam, Richard Nixon may have understood, but he still ended up having more men die after he became president than had died in Vietnam before. That mm. was not a particularly good way to get out. No, I would I would say not. I actually did not know that that fact. So that's that's interesting. I never have heard that before. Um, you know, you went on then after that and you served five presidents. Can you remember the first time you walked into the White House? Was it and you, you had a job to do? Was it like was it a punch in the gut? Were you nervous? Did you eat breakfast? Were you sick to your stomach? Were you just like, oh my god, I can't believe I'm here? Uh, I feel like it has to be a very sobering 
an exciting reality. My own personal memory of that is walking in the first day in kind of a sense of awe to actually be working on the National Security Council staff in uh, the White House compound. It's not actually, the office wasn't actually in the White House, but Mm -hmm. it was still that sense of passing through the Secret Service security around the White House Mm -hmm. because you actually worked there as opposed to were simply going to a meeting there. And that really didn't dissipate over the entire 10 years that I worked there off and on. Is, is there one president that you you worked with um, more directly than others or one that you think you would be have been closer with or have more contact with? Um. Well, I would say two. Um, I, and, and that would be Clinton and Obama. I, um, I had met Clinton before he was elected president when he was still the governor of Arkansas. And, uh, he is a very approachable uh, person. And whenever uh, I was in a situation in which a conversation was taking place, you always had the feeling that he was right there with you and engaged in the conversation and wanted to know what you thought. Uh, I actually spent more time with uh, President Obama because I was a more senior uh, person at that point in time and went to uh, more uh, meetings with him and also uh, went on a couple of trips uh, with him as the national security person when we would go to uh, the uh, dedication of uh, uh, of a bridge or uh, a national disaster area, mm. uh, and uh, had a chance to to ride on the helicopter with him or or something like that, and and have a conversation uh, with him. So they're the two uh, that I knew uh, that I knew the best and had the most rapport with. Um, I guess. Some people would say, well, that's because you obviously are identified as a Democrat. And and no, I, I don't think that that was the reason. I had enormous respect for uh, George H.W. Bush when he was president in terms of the way he conducted national security policy. And his national security advisor, Brent Scowcroft, was among the best national security advisors that the country's ever had. When, you, when you're dealing with a president, how much do you keep in mind like their their personality when you're uh presenting or talking to them uh, do you is that something you you calculate like if you have to give a, a proposal or an opinion in front of them uh, does, does each one you think have a different way they like to have information presented and you have to very much keep that in mind or you just stick straight to the facts and just give it as it is and that's it well it's a little bit of both i mean obviously the more personal contact you have with a president, the more you have an appreciation of their style. Uh, Even though uh, the press tries to convey that, it's really um, just a snapshot in time, so to speak, of each of those encounters that the press tries to talk about. And the personal interaction is 
uh, a very different kind of thing. So, yeah, you think about that. You also think about the fact that it is the president of the United States, and that's a little bit different from talking to other people under any circumstances. Uh, And uh, at the same time, uh, by and large, except when it is in a casual conversation, you are presenting something. And you want to do the best job that you can in presenting it and being distracted by other things doesn't help with the presentation. So right. it's a little bit of both. I know I obviously have had zero contact with any president of the United States. So I'm like the the political like uh, fan of me finds that just like so interesting having any type of personal dialogue um, with the president. I mean, how... I guess it probably depends on on your seniority or your familiarity, just like it does in any human interaction. But does the president ever let uh, ever just kind of make try to make a personal connection with people they work with? Like, do they like, oh, how's the wife and kids going? And do you talk about football and basketball, or like, how often does that happen? Or is it pretty just business like all the time? And they only they reserve that for their most close advisors. I think it's more. Uh, for the closer personal advisors. But I do think that to some extent um, there are uh, conversations uh, that involve some kind of personal interaction. I certainly felt that uh, because I spent more time with him, uh, with President Obama. We talked about um, growing up in Hawaii. Mm since I lived there when I was in third, fourth, and fifth grade. Hmm. Um, We talked about uh, baseball um, after the St. Louis Cardinals won the 2011 World Series, Mm -hmm. Um, and he officiated at the uh, White House ceremony for them and then uh, came uh, immediately from that, and I was there, to a meeting in the Situation Room on terrorism, and I was there. Um, and it was, it was just, you know, we talked about that. Do you, do you ever, I mean, having your job take place in such a serious sphere of things and, and working in the situation room and doing some of these things, um, I don't know. I just said that that's a lot of pressure. Did, I mean, did you ever have a moment where you're just like, I don't know, maybe like terrified in your job or really nervous or something was going on and you're just like, you have a pit in your stomach. Oh my God, like I have to be the one to deal with this or I have to be the one to take to take charge here and how do you how do you go forward and and get the mission accomplished and kind of ignore those feelings I just feel there has to be so much pressure right I mean being in a situation room it's a situation room it seems so it is serious you know I mean it's the most serious you can get yeah but the the, the first point I would make is you know why you're there you have received uh, a briefing memorandum which tells you what the agenda is going to be about and what particular points you should make from the perspective of the job that brings you to the table. Mm, right. So it's not like you, you're walking into a situation cold. Mm. You, you have at a minimum that And if it's an ongoing situation and uh, in that situation you are likely to have been to several meetings before any particular meeting. So you have background in the situation as well. 
I didn't feel that kind of uh, nervousness in the pit of my stomach. There were clearly some times uh, when I did, they were almost to a meeting when it was the first meeting mm. about something. But even there, they weren't they weren't frequent. And I say that because when you spend as many years dealing with national security issues as I have, I don't want to say it's commonplace, but you're prepared, I right. think is the best way to to put about it. And that kind of preparedness gives you a sense of confidence. And I would still go back to my experience in Vietnam in combat and say that knowing in that kind of a situation that you, as the leader, have to remain calm is... Certainly an experience that, as you mentioned also, leaves you with a sense of, uh, I can get through this. Right. No, I mean, I, th- I was talking with someone the other day about, you know, job interviews or internship interviews, things like that. And I made the comment that I'm kind of, one of the good things I feel like I got out of my service and having and having been in combat is, uh, maybe that kind of like steady hand you're speaking of, or knowing how to react under pressure. And that's part of the reason why I joined. I kind of I I left college and volunteered for the infantry because I wanted to. See, I grew up loving uh, World War II history. I mean, I was like a World War II history junkie in high school and even before. You know, I probably watched Band of Brothers ten times. Which, if you know Band of Brothers, it's a ten hour miniseries. That's like at least a hundred hours of just watching one thing. But I, I was I really idolized that generation, and I kind of wanted. But I did want to join and see if I had some of that in me. You know, if I got shot at, if I could go forward, like all these people I grew up idolizing. And so I think after doing a bit of that, you know, of course you always you can get nervous about a few things. And if it's something you really want or you're talking to someone in particular that's really influential maybe. But at the end of the day, having that past experience because it was so extreme, it kind of calms me in a weird way now. Because I'm in a way I'm like, kind of like I said earlier, well, I mean, it can't go too too poorly i mean maybe the worst that happens is they don't like me and then that's and that's unfortunate but then that's it you know so it kind of gives me this like calming effect where i can just put my best self forward i can kind of let a bit of my own personality come into an interview or something or an interaction not to feel so stuffy uh although of course you're always respectful uh but kind of it's kind of like freed me up in a way that that i like um and I think it's from having those experiences been so extreme. It's like, well, nothing can be more, you know, extreme than that. Um, if you, you know, you held all these really cool sounding positions, right? Like a ton of them. And that's kind of government. There's a lot of turnover. You know, every three or four years, you go on to something else. Is there a job that like was your absolute favorite? Or even if, you know, you had a time machine, you could go back into that job. You just loved it so much. What would, like, what position would that have been? As a general proposition, I felt as I moved up in government that every job I had was the best job I had at the time I had the job. Looking back, um, I I think uh, my time uh, as Assistant Secretary for International Narcotics and Law Enforcement Affairs, where I had, for the first time, uh, control over a budget, which was 
initially $200 million, and by the time I left the job, over a billion mm. a year. And I got to do some very interesting things, particularly with respect to Columbia. But I would also say that my time at the Department of Homeland Security uh, was uh, also uh, equally interesting uh, for two reasons. It it took me back to something that I had started, as I mentioned earlier, uh, in the late 90s about cybersecurity and infrastructure protection. But it also put me in um, a situation in which I was a very trusted personal advisor to the Secretary of Homeland Security, Janet Napolitano, who, while she had had government experience in the Department of Justice, uh, had never had any experience in national security policy. And so I became her tutor, so to speak. Um, and that kind of relationship just deepened and deepened uh, as the years went on. And I enjoyed tremendously working for her and I think had an opportunity to change the way that the Department of Homeland Security did some things. Would you, would you describe that relationship as kind of being like a, uh, a platoon commander and their, their staff NCO? Like you were now kind of like the staff sergeant, you know, t- taking this new lieutenant under your wing and directing uh, Secretary Napolitano kind of thing? That'd be accurate? That is a, a wonderful <laughs> image, Taylor. That's a very, very good image. And she, as the second lieutenant, <laughs> knew enough to listen. Right. Right, I think that's I think that's a good good uh, litmus test for a new lieutenant. Usually, is like how much to listen to if the if the staff sergeant and Gunny's good. Well, that's that's yes. a caveat. Yes, because sometimes you can get a poor one. But if they're good, how much they uh, they listen and take that advice? And uh, a good leader knows how much they don't know. You know, or a wise man knows how much he doesn't know. Um, was there ever a particular time in your career uh, where you had like a setback or a failure? And 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 where uh, that you actually learned a lot from it. I know I've had a few in my life where I've something's not gone my way, and then actually looking back on it, I'm I'm kind of glad it happened because it formed me going forward. Um, is there anything that sticks out to you as a time when either it was a failure of your part, just in general, or a department you worked for that really formed you going forward? Two come to mind, and both of them involved jobs that I had wanted and didn't get. The first during the H.W. Bush administration when I wanted a job in the Pentagon and for some reason didn't get it. But then I went back to the State Department as a deputy assistant secretary and um, everything turned out okay. And the second one was during the Clinton administration, and it was when I was uh, uh, director for uh, counter-narcotics and and terrorism and peacekeeping, and I had been uh, part of a delegation that was sent to Somalia to uh, get Warrant Officer Devine out of... Um, his uh, prisoner 
status with uh, the Somali warlord Idid. Uh, and um, we were obviously successful in, in getting that. And, and I became very interested in UN peacekeeping at the time. Um, and then I worked on peacekeeping in Haiti. And it was time to think about another job. And I um, very much wanted uh, to work for uh, a UN a special representative in one of the peacekeeping situations. I didn't get that job. Mm. But then I went on to be the assistant secretary for international narcotics and law enforcement affairs. So, you know, those were disappointments at the time. But looking backward, right, the path not taken wasn't necessarily going to be any better than the path I ended up taking. Right. And, and with that in mind, do you have any advice for, for young people that are considering a career in government? Um, any advice for someone either starting their career or even mid-career uh, that wants to kind of do some of the things that you did? The primary piece of advice that I always give is has two parts to it. Um, and uh, the first part is you should never stay in a job longer than five years and you should look for another job after three years. Now, if you're in the military or you're in the foreign service, the system does that for you and they move you around. But as I came to appreciate it, I was a civil servant by then and they don't move you around. You got to do it for yourself. And the second thing is no matter which system you're in in government, you should always look for opportunities that are outside the normal path that normal people take in their career pattern. In some cases, challenge your comfort zone. But, but most importantly, broaden your experience. Don't just think about rising in a sort of silo of your personal experience and, and background. Uh, because, as I said earlier, bringing that perspective from a totally different or somewhat different experience mm -hmm. to a new job allows you to have a perspective and to challenge the way things are being done, mm -hmm. or at least to ask why they're being done that way, right. uh, in, in order to see if you can't do that job better or differently in terms of how government works. Government is an inherently conservative uh, organization and the times in which change is most manifest internally is when we change administrations, even if we change from one president to another of the same party. Right. But I think it's important that you bring to a job the ability to think about it differently than the people who are currently doing the job do it, just to add the opportunity to overcome the inherent inertia that exists in government bureaucracy. All right. Well, with all this experience, are we going to see a, a book anytime soon with uh, Rambeers as the author? 
I'm not sure that's ever going to happen. No, you're not the uh, the book writing. Uh, uh, I've certainly thought about writing some things, but uh, by and large, that's not my style. Um, a lot of them are efforts at self justification. Right. I don't find that a useful uh, way to deal with life. That's fair. I do think that's kind of how a lot of them come across. That's for sure. Well, at the very least, uh, you have this podcast now, <laughs> which I don't know if that's uh, equivalent to a New York Times bestseller, but it, but it, it's something. <laughs> well, and I one be- of my life aphorisms is be careful what you wish for. <laughs> that's yeah. That no, that is very true too. Uh, well, I just want to thank you for coming on uh, the show today. I don't know if you have anything. Any other parting words, uh, feel free to interject. Uh, but, you know, we, we come to our, our conclusion of our time here. I just, I'm very appreciative you came on. Um, it's been fascinating uh, being in your class, but also being able to talk to you outside of class uh, because I think many of us, you know, look at the, the, the career trajectory you've had and you're like, wow, that's like, that's what I want. I want something like that. And so to be able to to sit and, and chat and and learn is a really, really cool thing, you know, so I appreciate that. Um, so unless you have any... I do. Words, you do? Well, I by, do. All, by all means, please. So it's a plea for your generation to think seriously about government service. I came from a family of preachers and teachers and public servants, and I never thought of doing anything other than working for the government. But I think in our political discourse today, and really, really for uh, the last several decades, public service has been criticized and diminished and seems less attractive to a number of people who have a serious uh, potential to make important contributions to government. It is a service. It is not something to do if you're interested in earning a lot of money. Uh, But I think it is, and it certainly was for me, an extraordinarily rewarding career and set of experiences. And I wouldn't trade it for any other kind of work. Well, I think those are good parting words, not just for people listening, but even for myself, because that's something that I uh, myself kind of go back and forth on as far as what do I want to be when I grow up. <laughs> and uh, government service is always there, and uh, it's something I always think about. So I think those are uh, outstanding parting words for all of us to think about. Uh, well, like I said, I want to thank you for coming on the show. It's been outstanding chatting with you. I want to remind anyone listening to make sure you, you know, review or rate me on whatever platform you're listening on. It helps other people see me, so people will listen to me, which is which is nice. And uh, with that, you've been listening to the Greenside Podcast. <laughs>